Welcome to The Weekender, Montana's half-hour news hour, a new podcast from Yellowstone Public Radio. Think of it like an alt-weekly that drops every other Friday. I'm your host, Nikki Willette. Each week on the show, we chat with a reporter to hear how they went about reporting the biggest news coming out of the state. This week, we're with the Missoulians Cameron Evans and Seaborn Larson, whose investigation of therapeutic homes for teens is part of what led the state to take unprecedented action last month. Later in the show, we meet some of Zoo Montana's newest residents. And then we test our guests, Cameron and Seaborn, on their Montana knowledge with our news quiz. Our front page guests this week are Cameron Evans and Seaborn Larson from the Missoulian. They've spent the past year reporting on private therapeutic group homes for teenagers. Last month, the state removed 27 kids from Ranch for Kids, a Christian alternative residential program that's based up in Rexford in the northwest corner of the state. Complaints had been made over the past 10 years, but the state didn't have regulatory power to intervene until last month. Ranch for Kids license has been suspended, which its director is contesting. Cam and Seab, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks Thank for having you. us. What kind of allegations were made against Ranch for Kids? So there were a lot of different allegations ranging from kids being spit on, um, kicked. It included verbal and physical and psychological abuse. They said that there had been physical assault. Um, by staff members. And so this had been over the years, and they received these allegations soon after the transition um, and just went from there. How has Ranch for Kids responded? The executive director of Ranch for Kids, uh, Bill Sutley, so he denied the health department's allegations. He said that there was no evidence to support the allegations. Their idea is that a lot of this is just tough love. Um, The idea being if they take kids on a 20-mile walk uh, in the on a dirt road in the middle of the night in some harsh weather, uh, that that is more therapeutic than it is punishment. And that, they say, is okay because of the relationships that they've developed with these kids over time. In the past, there had been conflicting statements from him where he said that the walks were just for therapeutic purposes, and then he'd also said that they were a form of punishment. This is kind of the first time that the state has done something like this. So what prevented the state health department from from responding to these kind of allegations of abuse sooner. The health department on July 1 took over the licensing oversight of these programs. Previously, the entire industry, these private residential teen treatment programs had been under the labor department, which was mostly looking at facilities and uh, individual licenses. While if there was a let's say, just uh, an allegation of abuse at the school, they might look at one case and they might be able to only look at one uh, instance of abuse, but they couldn't yank a program's license and investigate the program as far back like they're doing now with Ranch for Kids. The biggest difference is uh, who holds the license and who gets to um, look into the allegations. And so previously, if there had been a complaint about child abuse or neglect, uh, DPHHS could investigate individual complaints, but they just couldn't take any action against the program. So that was uh, really the main thing that changed when they took oversight. So this, this change in which state agency is overseeing these types of group homes, that was a change made in the legislative session from this past year. And 
I, I think it would be remiss not to mention this series that you guys worked on for the past year and a half, Troubled Kids, Troubled System. It dropped right before the session began. How do you think people responded to your series and, and how did that kind of play into the changes that we've seen recently? Over the last several legislative sessions, at least, the state and the part board had tried to bring religious programs under oversight, but that had failed. And so then after our series published, uh, we had so much feedback from people, you know, students, staff, parents, people that lived in the towns, Mm -hmm. people that were angry. Yeah, well, I mean, we had contacted legislators before we had uh, went with the series, before it published, just to make sure um, if something was going to be coming this session, we would know about it. And there really wasn't anything to this extent. There had been past like proposals for new measures that came in like incremental steps, but what came this session was really sweeping and really, um, I mean, really turned the industry's regulation upside down. And the other part of that was when legislation was put forward in the hearings and readings, uh, Diane Sands, who carried it through the House, did mention, you know, the series quite a bit. I think that did contribute in the end. It kind of just happened really quickly. And we didn't know if the legislation was going to pass for a while. It looked like it wouldn't. Yeah. And then it just kind of suddenly did, um, along with another bill that had been introduced by two Missoula attorneys who were working on a case which we included in the series about uh, staff members having inappropriate sexual relationships with students um, or program participants. And the legislation was based for that bill on basically the fact that there's a power imbalance. And so the kids in these programs don't have any way to communicate with people outside the program. So if there is any form of sexual abuse or even just inappropriate sexual relationships going on where the student might be consenting and they might be over the age of 16, but the legislation really gets at the fact that is it consent if there's that imbalance of power and so that passed as well. Can you talk me through kind of who, who even had this idea to look into these types of group homes? Yeah, Lucy Tompkins uh, was the right person to get this series uh, investigative piece started. Lucy is the former education reporter for the Missoulian who kicked off the series. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as the way she's explained it to me, Lucy had read um, a series in the Tampa Bay Times called In God's Name. And it looked at these uh, programs in Florida that have this relig- religious existence. So there's no state oversight for these programs. And so that got Lucy looking into, um, like any good reporter, what Montana does. And it turns out we also have that religious exemption. And so she started looking into kind of any form of regulation here in the state. And that led her to Spring Creek Lodge, which at the time was probably the most publicized program in the state. A 16-year-old girl killed herself in 2004. Um, after being voted off high-risk status by an untrained and uncertified staff. Um, The state finally decided to step in and say, let's impose some regulatory measures here. But ultimately, at the legislature the next year, um, the administrators from Spring Creek Lodge actually took a big hand in creating what that regulation looked like and what the architecture framework kind of would go forward looking like. And essentially what came out of that Uh, the next two legislative sessions was a a model that allowed these programs to regulate themselves. And so there we have uh, the conflict of interest that basically is the center of this whole story. And looking at 
how that self-regulating model had uh, worked over the last 10 years. Um, Lucy did so much of the heavy lifting. Ahead of our even joining this project, she requested documents. She listened to years of legislative hearings and hours of committee hearings. I mean, she was going from county to county collecting police records and looking at inspection reports and all these things that turned up um, a pretty clear picture of these programs getting away with what other people had called mistreatment. She went to Germany, actually, where she's living now. And so while she's over there reporting, we actually continued to work on the series with her from Germany, and that was a pretty wild experience. I had been generally looking into these programs throughout the nation, uh, not specifically in Montana. So I had some background, which mainly came from the fact that I went to one of the programs out of state in West Virginia for a year when I was in high school. And so when we started reporting on this and I wanted a hand in it, we really talked about transparency and whether or not there would be a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I felt like, you know, I felt like I was able to see both sides. And also my program wasn't in Montana in that I really just tried to separate anything that had happened at my program from the stories that we were hearing from other people. And ultimately, I do think that that helped in terms of kind of understanding and establishing sources, because within this community, there had been some interest from the media and kids were generally really distrusting of authority. And Lucy really established a lot of sources before she left. I mean, she had folders and folders of work. Yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit about how you coordinated coverage, especially after she left for Germany and you're trying to hit deadlines when, you know, it's six in the morning where she is and however late at night where you are? Pretty extraordinary to get to work on a project like this be just because we're both fairly young journalists and that kind of division of labor uh, really came from the top down with Kathy Best and Gwen Florio at the helm of the project editing and whether it was, um, you know, I go look at uh, court documents or go run through court documents because I'm the uh, cops and courts reporter at the paper, or um, Cameron goes to look at different kind of edu education models at these places. And we, so we try to play to our strengths. Sometimes uh, we'd kind of go work together on things. When we went over to the legislature, uh, while bills were moving through the um, committees, we would uh, sometimes interview uh, representatives or senators at the same time. And so there's there was strength in working on things together. And then we also, I think, were able to cover a lot of ground by breaking apart for uh, weeks at a time before we got back together. And also with that, I mean, Seaborn and I sit right next to each other at That's work. True. Yep. So we've got like a five-foot gap between <laughs> us. So pretty much any day it was like, oh, look what I found out. Mm -hmm. Oh, you found out this? Oh, okay, I should look into this. Oh, do you have time to do this? That mm -hmm. was a big, big thing. It was a lot of late nights um, and a lot of other reporters in the newsroom stepping in to cover for us, which we are still so appreciative and indebted to them because, I mean, at a small newspaper, I think at any daily newspaper, you have limited resources to do these kinds of projects. And in terms of covering the daily stories, you still need to fill the paper, you still need to cover breaking news, and that takes the willingness for other reporters to help you do that. And so I think in the future when, you know, some other reporters in the newsroom have their projects, we're going to owe them a little bit. I think, yeah, we haven't paid off all the beers we owe people. No. no, <laughs> no. For a really meaty project like this, how did you guys approach the idea of 
reporting on something that you're passionate about, where you see that there's room for improvement and things could change. You know, some people might call that activist journalism. Like, how do you square those two things? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, seeing documents and seeing uh, records that the state has, knowing that um, children are, are filing complaints and asking for help, and hundreds of kids attend these programs that are essentially regulating themselves, and no complaints emerge from that self-regulation board, um, that seems to me like something people would want to know who are above that board. It makes me think that people in these communities want to know what's going on at these programs. And um, having Cameron, who had attended one of these programs, and having uh, get, gotten to know Cameron over the last year, since we started, I think, within the same week at the Missoulian, um, I was comfortable with um, her being able to keep her biases in check and go into interviews informed when we talk to kids. And the hardest part sometimes is to scale your own emotions back because there are kids who uh, may or may not be in danger and no one is really looking out for them except for the people who are collecting their parents' checks. And that part, I thought, um, we have an opportunity here to shine a light on something that no one has taken a good hard look at in 12 years. And that, uh, that kind of opportunity is something, you know, we all want to do in journalism, I think. And I think, too, in reporting without bias, a big part of it is recognizing that everyone has a bias. You're mm-hmm. always going to have a bias towards something. And then thinking about how can you put that aside and how can you be objective. Something that we did before the Troubled Teen series published was went line by line. I wasn't in the office the night they did this, but I know Seaborn mm-hmm. and Kathy and Gwen uh, like locked themselves in a conference room and just went and fact-checked every single little thing. They really went at it. Um, yeah, that was not one night. That was several days of oh, yeah, yeah. peeling every line out and uh, do we have documents for this? Did this person say that? And do we have another person to corroborate that? And it was really eye-opening just to look at everything that we did have to back up everything we reported on. And we were doing that line by line editing was uh, something that made me a lot more confident when the story started rolling out. And I think too, just from the experiences I had, I, I really did learn that everyone's experiences at these programs vary so widely. And so for some people, they work and for other kids, they don't and they really don't. We just tried to hear everyone's stories. And there were, you know, kids that we talked to that said, oh, I had a good experience at this program. And as we continue to do follow up, those aren't voices that we're trying to exclude or anything like that. Um, we do want to be inclusive. I think our, our series did bring a lot of voices to the surface that had been stifled by that self-regulating board. What other kind of feedback have you guys gotten on this series? It's definitely been mixed, yeah. There are a lot of parents who are very staunch supporters of these programs, and I think they're the ones to know whether uh, their kid came out successfully or not. For the most part, even the self-regulating board and many of the people from the industry um, had said, you know, this change in oversight is actually good for the industry because of credibility. And those are the programs that we identified as not having too many serious problems, if any at all. And so there are obviously going to be some programs that came to Montana because there was more relaxed regulations. And those guys are not really interested in seeing this overchange or the oversight change. Right now, 
people from the health department, quality assurance division are visiting the programs and getting an idea of what they do. Um, and from there, they're going to work on some new rules to govern them under the health department. So that will be really interesting to see how these rules shape what these programs can and can't do. Clearly from Ranch for Kids, the process of filing complaints has already changed. Yeah, changed in pretty drastically considering the sting. Yeah, no kidding. What are the two of you working on now? Seaburn and I are really itching to get back to some follow-ups on Trouble Teens. Um, you know, it's one of those things where as we were reporting on it, I mean, we just gained so much information about all of these programs and practices and a good amount of it we just had to file away because we could only publish so much and we really wanted people to be able to digest what we were putting out there. And We're still hearing from former students and former staff and uh, we really want to get back up to Northwest, Northwest Montana where most of these places are and just uh, continue to dig a little bit deeper into the practices there. I think on the surface it looks like this industry is just kind of this ragtag circus that blew in a couple of years ago because Montana had no real regulations up until 2005. The changes put in place by the legislature this year uh, really are a watershed moment for the entire industry. And I'm really excited just to see what the actual changes look like five years from now, 10 years from now, because I think some programs are going to be stronger and I think some programs aren't going to exist anymore. And so um, that stands on the shoulders of the former staff and students that went and testified at the legislature earlier this year and uh, really tore their heart out in front of these uh, committee members just to show them that uh, this is a serious problem and it is something that needs to be looked at and the legislature really got that done this year. Among people that reached out for feedback, we had people reaching out and saying things like, oh, there's a paywall up for this article and I can't read it. <laughs> <laughs> and to that extent, I think I hope people realize when stories and series like this come out that really talk about their local community, that we can only do these series when people subscribe and, you know, at least pay for these specific stories. Um I mean, without it, we're not able to get records on these things. We can't get the documents. We can't dedicate the time. We can't pay for gas to drive up to Rexford, Montana, and visit Ranch for Kids. That was a shameless plug. For I was, I was like, I'm, I don't yeah, know if that's like I'm, too shameless. Yeah. But I just like what I'm trying to get at is like subscribe to the Missoulian. I'm just like value value local reporting. Cameron and Seaborn, thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Next up, arts and culture. This week, we sent Caitlin Nicholas to Zoo, Montana to meet Nellie and Bert. Caitlin, who are Nellie and Bert? Nellie and Bert are some of the newest residents of Zoo, Montana. They are the bison. Bison? I didn't know the zoo had bison. Where'd they come from? They are both from private herds. Bert is from the Fort Smith area. He was a late September calf who was trampled when he was only a month old, mm -hmm. and so he was raised by humans. And Nellie is about six months younger than Bert. She also is from a private herd near the Judith Gap area. And how long have people been able to see them at the zoo? The exhibit opened in February. Gotcha. So what is their exhibit? What does their space look like? 
Well, it's supposed to mimic the Lamar Valley. The only thing it's missing is the river. It's these big alfalfa fields with hills and large white boulders. What were they doing when you went to visit them? They were both lying out in the grass, and then Melissa Eschenbrenner, their keeper, actually took me behind the exhibit where there is a cattle chute, which is also called a hallway, where they do their training every night before they go to bed. Cool. Let's have a listen. You want to head on down, and I'll show you their their nightly routine? Let's do it. Generally, if we can get him moving in the right direction, she'll move with him. She's used to being in a herd. He's not so much. So I think she does look to him for if he thinks it's safe, then it it might really be safe. Whereas he looks to people for it. Yeah, here he comes. Yeah. So when they first got here, we had to train them that a bell meant they were going to get something good at the other end. So every time we'd give them their grain, we would ring the bell. Their recall training, just getting them to come off of exhibit, is important in case something were to happen to compromise the exhibit, or if something fell in that was not supposed to be in the exhibit that could cause a problem for either them or a member of the public. So Montana has a huge place in my heart, and this zoo has a huge place in my heart. We get people who come from all around the country, of course, but we get people who come in once a month, once a week. When Goliath, our draft horse, passed away, It was a huge loss, not to just our zoo community, but to our community as a whole. People knew him. It's it's nice to have people who really care. It's a destination for the community, not just for the surrounding areas. The shoot training that we're doing is for medical procedures. These guys can be darted and anesthetized and procedures can be done that way, but that's stressful for the animal. It's more likely to have complications. So, if we can have them willingly walk into a chute for us and we can do what we need to do and they're comfortable with it, it's a lot less traumatic for them. It gives our vets a lot more leeway with what they can and can't do with them. Good girl, Nellie. You are such a good bison. So for her, she gets her grain in this hallway at the end of pretty much every day. And that way she can see that the hallway's not going to hurt her. And little at a time we get her to come in farther and farther. To a lot of people, when we describe our training steps to them, they'll be like, so she stepped in the hallway. Like, no, no, she stepped in the hallway. <laughs> it's the most exciting thing in the world. It's those little things that make you happy every day. Because <laughs> it means that if we need to do something with her, we can at least get her to this point. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to force her into something that she doesn't want to do. Did you want to see if she'll take some treats from you? Sure, no, I'll do that. And then if you just put your hand out, she might just lick your hand. She might not be interested, but she might just lick your hand. You can feel how ridiculously rough their tongues are. Amazing! <laughs> <laughs> they are really they rough. like cat tongues. Yeah. They remind me of cat tongues. I think that's all just to help them grab as much of the foliage as they can. It's a strange design, but they're pretty amazing. Kids. Whoa, Caitlin, you got to feel a bison tongue. I know. Not many people can say that. What was it like? It was really unexpected. I didn't know that was going to happen, but I, I was a little nervous, but then it actually was really fun. Yeah, it's like having a giant cat lick you. It really was. 
strangely. <laughs> so if people want to go visit Bert and Nellie, when can they do that? The zoo is open actually every day from 10 to 4. And just keep an eye out for Melissa, who is their keeper. Well, thanks, Caitlin. Thank you. Now's the time when we test Cameron and Seaborn's knowledge of headline news from around the state. We've got a minute on the clock. As our very first contestants, you are already guaranteed the accolade of reigning champions. I came in wanting that. (laughs) Oh, good. Well, I'm glad that we can deliver. Okay, are you guys ready? Oh, yeah. On Sunday, which city received significant hail damage after a thunderstorm rolled through? I think that was Billings. Ding. U.S. Forest Service officials proposed increasing what kind of fees last week? Fees on cabins in Lolo National Forest. That's right. On Tuesday, a Bozeman man wanted his what back when they seized it, when the police seized it during his arrest. I don't know. Is it a grizzly bear? (laughs) It was not. It was his shoes. He was told these items would be returned once the case was settled. State health officials are proposing new rules to protect public school students from what? Oh, I That's you. That's you. Oh, from data privacy protections. Wow, that might also be true, but we were looking for wildfire smoke or poor air quality. (laughs) Oh, okay, well, they also recently... Okay, anyway, next question. A Canadian man who broke his windshield while driving through a construction zone called law enforcement in the Flathead Valley asking if they could do what? Oh, goodness, I don't know. Fix his windshield? (laughs) You are so close. This comes to us from the Flathead Beacons police blotter. If America could reimburse him for his windshield damage. Oh, Oh. man. We won't. (laughs) Thanks so much for playing, guys. Champions. And that's your Weekender. Tune back in two weeks for our next episode. I'm Nikki Ouellette. Thanks for listening. The Weekender, Montana's half-hour news hour, is produced by Nikki Wallet and Caitlin Nicholas for Yellowstone Public Radio. Theme music by Caleb Barn. Partial funding for The Weekender is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montana. <laughs>